Eight years I spent in Rome, and for five of these I had the privilege of being the uh, assistant master of ceremonies at the Papal Basilica of St. Mary Major. Apparently, St. Mary Major is Pope Francis's favorite church in Rome, so we have this in common. Recently, the Lord permitted the spectacle of France's primatial church, Notre Dame, burning almost to the ground, and this during Holy Week, a fitting sign, perhaps, for a country whose faith is itself almost derelict, and whose faithful, for the most part, were unlikely to commemorate the epochal events of Holy Week. It gave me cause to remember how Rome's Basilica of St. Paul's outside the walls had burned to the ground two centuries earlier, and how the Pope's own cathedral, the Lateran Basilica, some centuries before, lay in ruin, its roof having collapsed, cows grazing in the nave. All of Rome's papal basilicas have been substantially rebuilt or totally rebuilt during their histories, all except St. Mary Major, which stands today essentially the same as when she was built more than 16 centuries ago. And this too is a fitting sign. Mary's church, like her faith, remains intact, impeccable. St. Mary Major was built, incidentally, to celebrate the triumph of orthodoxy at the Council of Ephesus in the year of our Lord 431, mentioned this morning. The council we considered in discussing the divine maternity of Mary, since this was the council which, to protect the divinity of Christ, declared Mary to be the God-bearer, Theotokos, in Latin, Mater Dei, or Mother of God. Many of you might recall the miracle how it occurred that St. Mary Major was built in Rome and on the site when Our Lady appeared in a dream both to the reigning Pope and to the landowner of that property and asked that a temple be dedicated to her honor in the place where next it snows in Rome. Now it almost never snows in Rome. It never did once in the eight years I was there. But when it snowed on the very next August 5th, which is summer's sweltering peak in Rome, the miracle of the snows was plain for all to see. And for the first time, an ancient custom was broken in the church, that of only naming a church for a saint in a place where that saint actually lived. Incidentally, the Council of Ephesus was held in Ephesus, in an even more ancient basilica dedicated to Our Lady, which is taken to constitute archaeological proof that Our Lady, in fact, lived in Ephesus, which should hardly surprise us, Ephesus being the place where the beloved disciple John came to live and work, she into whose home she went. 
Now, when one walks down the nave of the major basilica of Our Lady in Rome, all the focus is immediately attracted to the apse mosaic in the front. It depicts a scene previously unknown in Christian iconography. For the first time, the Mother of God is shown sharing the throne of Christ in heaven, her divine Son, the King of Kings. He is crowning her Queen of Heaven and Earth. It's not the only example of its kind. Another prominent example being the Basilica of Santa Maria in Trastevere, which was the first public place for Christian worship after Emperor Constantine decreed freedom of religion for Christians. And that site, Santa Maria in Trastevere, had been hallowed by Christians from the very start of Christianity on account of a mysterious fountain of oil which sprung from the ground at the time of Christ's birth, in a sense signaling the coming to earth of the anointed one of God. Mary is depicted in both of those apse mosaics as being crowned by her son and sharing his throne in heaven. Mary is the queen reigning in heaven on account of her transition from this world to the next. And how she got there will be the subject of this evening's conference. Now, I mention all this because Cardinal Newman revealed in the order in which he gave the four Marian dogmas, he, the assumption of Mary is established in the faith of the church before the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, despite the fact that the dogma of the Assumption was only dogmatically defined in 1950, 60 years after his death, whereas the Immaculate Conception was defined already in 1854 during his life. And what this goes to show is that the faith of the Church becomes settled on a dogmatic fact long before sometimes centuries before it is solemnly defined in an act of the infallible magisterium of the church. So the fact that the assumption of Our Lady was only declared dogmatically in 1950 does not mean that we only added the fourth and fifth glorious mysteries to the rosary after 1950. We've been praying them for 800 years. So the impeccability of the faith what some call infallibility, is an attribute of Holy Church, not of the Pope per se, except insofar as he is the visible vicar of its proclamation. Peter's vocation is to strengthen the faith of his brethren, not to invent it. It behooves him, therefore, to discern it. To discern what? The sensus fidelium, the sense of the faithful. Now, the sense of the faithful, both in East and in West, from the earliest centuries, held the doctrine of what we now call the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, namely, that she who knew not the corruption of sin was spared also the consequence of sin's corruption, the corruption of the body and death. Instead, at the termination of her earthly life, Mary was made a partaker as a first fruits 
of what awaits all the elect in the resurrection of the flesh on the last day, our glorious bodies reigning triumphant in heaven. In our church, which fervently cultivates relics of every sort, every sort, tellingly, we have no tombs where the faithful can venerate the remains of our blessed Lord and of his blessed mother. His Easter tomb is empty still, and so is hers. Their bodies are elsewhere. His is the first human nature to open the gates of heaven to all who will follow. And she is the first human person to lead in that procession following. Newman himself asks, Is it more surprising to us that she should be so admitted there where we have also been promised admittance? And if so, why not her first and then us? Now between the East and the West, and even within the West, there is some controversy concerning the question of whether she, like her son, needed first to taste death. Now she's not exactly like her son in this regard, because he made himself the sin offering for the crimes of the whole world. Whereas when she went to her end, she went without the stain of the slightest sin. And scripture is clear that the wages of sin is death. She who is without sin did not therefore merit its consequence. There's also some controversy surrounding the question of whether this event took place at Ephesus, where evidence showed she had lived, or rather in Jerusalem, which seems the more likely. But no controversy has ever surrounded the dogmatic fact that whether she reached or crossed the threshold of, of the moment of death or not, in what Orientals call her Domitian, she was immediately then assumed body and soul into the glory of heaven where she reigns over us in regal splendor. As a king, Christ was born in David's royal city, fated by the three kings of the Orient. As a king, he dies under the title whereby he is styled Jesus of Nazareth, King. It is a truism that more cannot be sought in the effect which was not contained in the cause. Surely then, his mother is queen, she who every generation will call blessed who caused Elizabeth to ponder what she had done to merit a visit from the mother of the Lord. In the bosom of the apostolic college, she reigned as queen of apostles over the very twelve to whom the Lord had promised twelve thrones to judge the entrance portals to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Not only is the Virgin of Virgins also the queen of virgins, she is the queen of all saints. 
She is also the queen of martyrs. Newman asks, how can she be exalted over those whose bodies suffered the most ruthless violence and keenest torments? She who never suffered any blow or wound or, God forbid, any other injury to her consecrated person. But as saintly Simeon prophesied to her at the time of her son's presentation in the temple, a sword would pierce her heart. And as Newman observes, the pains of the soul may be as fierce and even exceed those of the body. If our Lord himself could hardly bear the prospect of what lay before him at Gethsemane and was covered at the thought of it with a bloody sweat, his soul thus acting on his body, does this not prove how greater the mental pain can be? If it was through the rending of the sacred heart of its Savior that the world was brought its peace, and it was she who brought the world its Savior and gave him that sacred heart, then how could that sacred heart have been pierced without first passing through her own immaculate heart? And thus she also is our Queen of Peace, Regina Pacis. Indeed, two were the altars of sacrifice at Calvary, two hearts beating in unison, the Sacred Heart of our Lord and the Immaculate Heart of His Mother, united in a single purpose. And who is closer to the Lord than His angels, those perfect beings created to stand eternally in His august presence and offer Him the praise worthy of Him? Yet she, the Mother of the Lord, stands nearer to Him yet than any angel, Nearer even than the seraphim with whom he is surrounded and who cry continually, Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus. Indeed, we are told that she is the queen of angels. She to whom the archangels appeared, both of them honored by sacred writ, St. Gabriel and St. Michael. It is she St. John saw in his vision as the great sign in the heavens, meaning by the heavens the kingdom, she is clothed with the sun, with the moon at her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve thorns, twelve stars. How can any, therefore, deny her this crown? John in the Apocalypse shows how Michael and his angels were the real guardians of the Blessed Mother then and on all other occasions. How they must have preserved their queen during the flight into Egypt and beyond. Now, as then, it is the queen of angels who has these holy hosts at her service since she is their queen. And so let her be our queen too. And if she is our queen, let us not deny her her royal tiara. Let us crown her with twelve stars. She who is the morning star, the stella matutina, that star which heralds the coming of the light at dawn. She shined not for herself, she shone not for herself, but for him. When she appears in the darkness of our life, we know the light of the world is at hand. She is the harbinger of that eternal dawn, of which every morning's dawn represents a victory 
over the apparent conquest of night's darkness. The stars hold their places in the heavens, like our queen assumed into heaven, and like her they show themselves ever bright and marvelous to all the tribes of peoples. Who is this, asks the canticle of canticles, who comes forth like the dawn, as beautiful as the moon? She is the queen to our king, Mary most pure, who reflects most perfectly as in a mirror of justice, a speculum justitiae, the light of her son. She is the celestial being given to guide man's way in the dark, a light not to blind us but soft and reflective by which we find our way to the dawn of the eternal light. Yet all of her light is not hers, it is all his reflected perfectly in her. We fly unto thy patronage, O Holy Mother of God. Despise not our petitions in our necessities, but deliver us always from all dangers, O glorious and blessed Virgin. Amen.